Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In our last episode, we were joined by Azeen Gureshi from BuzzFeed to discuss an in-depth story on Kratom that she wrote titled, Meet the Kratom Warriors, who say this plant will end the opioid epidemic. My guest today is Courtney True, one of those Kratom users profiled in the column. Courtney is here today to share her story about how Kratom helped her stop using after 27 years of opioid abuse. As we begin, Courtney shares how she became addicted at a very young age. Yes, um, I grew up in South Mississippi or East Central Mississippi, actually, and um, you can tell geography may not be our thing today, but um, I'm 41 years old, so this would have been in the 80s, and I had um, pretty unrelenting migraines, um, and there just really wasn't a lot they were doing for it back then. So part of what I was giving was a prescription for Percocet to take as needed for headaches. Um, and very shortly after that, decided that that I liked the way that they made me feel like I felt like they enhanced my life. So that kind of began part of my adventures with substance use. So right away, you started abusing it, really? Um, what would happen is I would, you, even back then, like, it, no one was really savvy enough to figure out how to get extra prescriptions, certainly not at that age. So what I would do is I would get the prescription and I would take most all of it right away within a few days. So I would say probably probably three or four months into being able to get these prescriptions, I was definitely not taking it as prescribed. So why didn't the doctors cut you off then? Or maybe they did. Um, at one point they did eventually. Um, after I'd moved to Maine in 1998, um, doctor shopping became a thing that a lot of people were doing, including me, where you go to multiple doctors and get multiple prescriptions. That went on for quite a few years, and I was flagged by the state. Um, which meant I could really no longer receive any prescriptions from anyone without it being reported. And I'm not sure what the punishment would have been, but possibly potentially arrested. Everyone gets cut off eventually. Courtney ran out of options after it was uncovered that she had been doctor shopping. The options at that point were because there was still quite a few people getting pills who were doing things like selling them. Um, there was a lot of people getting pills where other people would steal them and sell them. There was um, there was also online pharmacy situation. So I did a lot of ordering off online pharmacies, thousands and thousands of dollars, um, and also would buy pills from people who other people who had pills. So, and at that point, you're physically addicted, it's safe to say. Beyond, yeah. I became physically addicted. My daughter was born in 2004, um, and during that pregnancy, I had spent a lot of that time stockpiling um, mainly opiates and benzos um, because I didn't take anything while I was pregnant and um, just really went to town after her birth. And it was probably when she was about six months old is the first time I realized I got sick if I tried to stop. Wow. So what happened next? Um, what happens next is we start having the crackdown on, on, you know, the opiates being prescribed. The CDC guidelines started coming out. Doctors started shutting patients off or reducing patients to the point where they would only get what they could. Um, part of what was going on was um, I'm a nurse, um, so I worked in the medical field, so, so it was pretty easy at times to get my hands on things that didn't belong to me. Um, at this point, I'm just using to not be sick. 
um, because I had I had a big life. I had two kids. I was a nurse. Um, the person who's my ex-husband now was a lieutenant in the fire department in Portland, which is a good-sized city. I couldn't I couldn't afford to be to be sick with withdrawal. So I was willing to do anything it took to get that. And then when all these guidelines came out and everyone was taking off their pain pills, there were no more pills to sell. The online pharmacy shut down. And what was around, though, was a lot of heroin. So I very quickly, I had already been, you know, using pills IV. So it was a pretty easy shift over to heroin. So for and what year was this, first of all? In the late, maybe 2010, 2009, sometime around there. I don't, it was very subtle how it went from, you know, being able to find pills to not being able to find pills. And this whole time also, my daughter was a year old, a um, wave of patients in the state of Maine to be placed on Suboxone. Um, but that's like, for me, in my situation, that was a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Um, I would just use the Suboxone if nothing else was around. So I had to be sick. But if there were drugs to be found, I would use those and then not take my Suboxone. Let me ask you something. It sounds like your yep. focus is on your family, your focus is on your career, and your desire to use, if you will, was simply to maintain. It wasn't a recreational thing. Is that, is that no, correct? It was no, that is very correct. It was no more for recreation. It was just to avoid withdrawal, which um, I don't think there's a great way to explain opiate withdrawal to anyone, but it's horrendous, the amount of pain and stress that it puts your body through, and I just, I had no tolerance for it. I asked Courtney why she risked infection, disease, overdose, and even death when she could have just used Suboxone to stop using. I'm, I felt like using opiates, especially IV, gave me energy. Um, I felt like it made me more on point. Like mentally, I felt like it made me smarter. I felt like all Suboxone did was prevent me from being sick. So there was still that attraction to being able to use, you know, high power opiates to get up and get my day done. You know, like, oh, we've got some remodeling to do today, or I've got a 12-hour work day. So that the energy that they provided was very attractive. And then at some point, it all fell apart, didn't it? Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> it did. It did all fall apart. Um, towards, um, towards May of 2016, um, I was also very, very heavily into alcohol and benzodiazepines. I was working from home um, for one of the big three insurance companies. So I was very isolated. Um, and also I was very non-checked on. I sat in my office for 12 hours a day, um, quote unquote, working, um, getting sicker and sicker by the moment. Yeah. And then what happened in the midst of all of this, this kind of craziness is my son, who I believe at the time was, was 13 or 14, um, he found some needles. Um, I believe he found a crack pipe and a few things and he took a picture of it and he sent it to his dad, my ex-husband. So my ex-husband comes over and gets the kids and pretty much tells me like, I'm too sick to have my kids in my life. So mother's day is coming up. My kids are gone. My current marriage is falling apart. My, we were just informed that our house was in the paper getting ready to be short sold because we hadn't paid the mortgage in seven or eight months, probably at this time. And, um, I just was done. I just walked into my kitchen and I just, I've never felt anything like that in my life. I was completely done. So I drank about half a bottle of 90 proof liquor and I took 60 to 90 clonidine, which is a blood pressure medication. And I went and laid down. So, but I did end up having a realization of the level of selfishness of that act shortly after I did it. Um, and I had my husband take me to the hospital where it was pretty touch and go for, for a day or two. Wow. And I came out and decided um, I had to do something different, but I didn't know what that different thing was. 
um, because everything I was trying, you know, I tried church, I had tried uh, everything you could possibly think of that you could buy over the counter. I tried Suboxone, I'd been to a few meetings, and nothing felt like it was going to work for me. Um, and then July of that year, things were already going horribly, horribly wrong again, and I took the step to walk into a meeting, a 12-step fellowship meeting in July of 2016, and that's that was the beginning of feeling like maybe this is something I can actually do. And so I started taking my Suboxone as prescribed. Um, <clears throat> actually, that's not true. My husband was prescribed Suboxone, and I, we shared a prescription because cost-wise, it would not have been affordable for us both to take our own Suboxone prescriptions. So and, um, you were. Became, so he ended up with half of his prescription because he shared it with you. Right, which they give you a lot more than you need. Like, that's very commonplace with Suboxone, that you doctors give much higher doses than you actually need to, to be okay. From Courtney's perspective, doctors commonly overprescribe Suboxone. In fact, in her case, a 16-milligram prescription was enough to share with her husband. I looked up a study from March of 2017 on buprenorphine prescribing practice trends and attitude in New York City among their uh, providers. And the study found that actually 16 milligrams was the average Suboxone prescription. And those doctors expressed no concern about diversion at that time. We're going to list that study, by the way, with this podcast. Well, that's kind of problematic. I didn't know that that's that's standard practice to give you much more than what you need of Suboxone. They don't, they think it's what you need. Um, Like when I was first placed on Suboxone in 2004, I believe he prescribed me something like um, it was 16 to 24 milligrams a day. Like it was a lot and you just, you just don't need that much, but they, you know, I feel like they don't know. And my theory on Suboxone being, you know, quote unquote diverted is at least maybe somebody's getting it who needs it. You know, maybe one person who bought that Suboxone that that person didn't need, maybe they won't die tonight. I would be happy if you could just walk into like the store and buy it. I know that sounds really extreme, but it's, it's very difficult to harm yourself with as far as, you know, as far as I certainly, I my personal experience was I never got high off of it. You know, it was just something that it would keep me safe for the time being. So I have no, I have no qualms around if diversion's a bad thing or a good thing. What happened next there, Courtney? Um, so um, you and your husband are splitting one prescription of Suboxone. Take us from there. Yep. Um, we're splitting the prescription of Suboxone and I'm working with a 12-step fellowship. I'm doing, you know, what we call sponsorship and I'm working steps. And I'm starting to get um, spiritually better. I'm starting to feel better about all aspects of my life from doing a lot of things that would give you self-awareness. So I started thinking, I wonder what life would be like without the Suboxone. And in the fall of 2016, I started trying to taper off, trying to taper off, and just I could not get off of it. No matter how low and how slow I tapered, I was still really, really, really sick. And I happened to see this thing when I'm kind of, you know, I'm sitting at the kitchen table, not not happy at all, feeling really sick, but not wanting to take Suboxone anymore. And it flashed across my newsfeed on Facebook, this little, it was an ad for Kratom. And I thought, you know, what in the world is that? So I start doing a little research and I find very little information. But what I did find was a smoke shop in Portland, 20 minutes from me, that sold Kratom. So I went and got some and the rest is history, (laughs) I guess. And that was 18 months ago tomorrow. But you went and got some and... In a very in very short order, in fact, before you made it back to your home, if I'm not mistaken, you could feel yes. the effects of it. Yep, I could feel, and effects is a really funny word when we're talking about Kratom, and that's why a lot of people, when they go out and get some and they take it, they say, I don't feel anything. 
Um, but what it does when you're in withdrawal is it just took away the withdrawal. Like there was no actual feeling to the kratom. Like there wasn't a buzz or you didn't, I didn't get all tingly. I just wasn't in withdrawal anymore. So I have to ask you this question. Yeah. I, oh, okay. Um, I have to ask you this question about, um, you yep. know, to kind of rate where you were in terms of your addiction and in, in, in terms of the intensity of the withdrawal, right? So, you know, the, the more deeply you are in the throws, the more that you're using, I think, the greater the withdrawal is, right? And the um, sickness? A lot of that is substance-dependent. Um, Suboxone has a really intense withdrawal, as does methadone, and it's really long. Um, you know, before when I would get off, you know, pills or, or heroin even, I, you know, I could, about five days, and you'd be feeling okay again. You'd be feeling like you were going to live versus Suboxone. You're looking at 28 days of severe and acute withdrawal. And oh even God. having tapered, it was still just as severe as even if I hadn't tapered. The fact that Suboxone lasts so long in the body is a benefit when it's used as a prescription because it helps to reduce cravings for stronger opioids for a longer period of time. However, for a person addicted to Suboxone, the longer half-life means that withdrawal can take a lot longer. Buprenorphine's half-life is 37 hours. Full opioid agonists like uh, morphine, for example, typically have a half-life of two to seven hours. So while that means that Suboxone withdrawal symptoms will not begin the same day, it impacts how long drug users take, and that drug takes, actually, to leave the body. So as severe as, like, withdrawal from heroin, you're saying? Only longer? Yes. Yeah, Mm. only longer. I found them to be exactly the same, just the difference being the duration of them. And was this just you, and or was is this everybody? That's, that's the same experience that the people in my life have had as far as coming off Suboxone versus coming off of heroin or fentanyl. Uh, it's very, very drawn out. And no one tells you that when you get on it. <laughs> no, one, no one says, by the way, you may never be able to get off of this. Which for some people, that might be okay. Like if they want to take it forever, go them. Sure. So... I Okay. So you found Kratom. You, you found it at a smoke shop, 20 minutes from your house. On the way back, you crack into it, uh, so to speak. You yeah. open it up and, and you try some. And within that 20-minute drive, you feel this calm and, and that, that withdrawal kind of goes away where you were on day one of 27 more days after that yep. of just complete agony. And then what happened going yep. forward? Um. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, the smoke shop kratom is very overpriced, um, and I didn't couldn't find any information, any leg- what seemed like legitimate information on how to take it. So I was really all over the place with it. Um, come so, to find out, I wasn't taking near enough. That would seem to be a simple thing, don't they have you know instructions <laughs> on the bottle and what have you? You know why why is it so difficult to to know that how much you're supposed to take? There. There is an instructions on the bottle because it's not an FDA approved supplement. Um, so a lot of some of the kratom you'll see will say not for human consumption on it, and that's just a way of the person protecting themselves. Whoever packaged the kratom, um, the kratom that I order does not say that on it. So, but it also um, it's just I believe what I have now has some instructions on it. Um, Tom Day's going to be like really, but it's there just wasn't any instructions. So I really fumbled around with it for about a month. Oh. So how oh. did you finally 
come into the light? <laughs> How did I finally it? figure it out? Yeah. It was, um, it, so for about a month, um, my goal was what I thought I wanted to do was just take Kratom until the Suboxone withdrawal ended and then stop. Um, so I'm getting, I was getting really close to feeling like the Suboxone withdrawal was easing up. Come to find out it, it lasts much, much longer than I thought it did. Um, post-acute withdrawal can go on for years. Um, and about that time, I got this obsession in my head about what it would be like to, to shoot heroin without any Suboxone in my system because those 12 years I'd been using heroin, I always had a little Suboxone in my system. So I got an obsession, which is the way almost all relapses start. I got an obsession that I refused to take any action around. Um, so it turned into me going and buying heroin and using it in my car and thankfully not dying. Um, and that turned my home life upside down because at this point my husband's clean. Um, you know, he's completely in recovery, completely bought in. And I walk into the house with heroin. Um, it turned all the work I'd done over the past few months, it turned everything upside down again. And I knew right then and there I had this moment of clarity where I'm like, I don't care what it takes, I'm done. So that's when I finally found, you know, the Kratom community. I found the Facebook groups. I found some Reddit threads. I ordered Kratom from a reputable vendor and I ordered a lot of it, you know, I ordered 2.2 pounds. So I had plenty and I, I just dove in. I just knew I had to make it work. I was going to die. So what was the dosage that you found that was the answer for you personally? The dosage ended up being, cause I still had some withdrawal left over. Um, by the time I made the decision to go back to Kratom and at first I needed to take, um, I needed to take about six to 10 grams every two to three hours for those first few weeks. Um, sometimes I needed to take some during the night too. I would wake up, you know, sweating and having, you know, almost night terrors. So I would take it to bed with me and take it at night. As the months progressed on though, um, you just start needing less and less. Um, so that some seems, days I can take it now, some days I don't. So. That seems counterintuitive to what I, uh, I, I read. Um, many of the accounts say that it is addicting, and with some one of the gentlemen cited in the article, in fact, said that his usage actually accelerated and went up over time. I'm not sure so how that happens, being just regular powder, because if you take too much, you're going to get nauseous, you're going to be shaky, and you're not going to feel good. Like, it's not an experience that I would ever like to repeat. It's not an experience where I'm like, oh, I should have some more of that, because and, there, and there's no benefit to having more and more and more. I think a lot of times maybe that's someone who hasn't dealt at all with the underlying issue of addiction. And if it wasn't Kratom, it might, it would probably be something else. So hasn't dealt with the underlying issues associated with addiction. What do you mean? Right. Um, under, like, why are you, why are you using in the first place? You know, are you using a substance to try to check out, um, if so, Kratom's probably not going to do it for you, and you're going to end up eating more and more and more Kratom, trying to chase a feeling that Kratom is just never going to give you. But sometimes as addicts, we're, we're often very, very smart, but we are also can be the slowest learners in the room at times, because we'll just keep repeating the same behavior that doesn't work over and over. So, and, and two, like, it's important to think about dependence versus addiction. Um, is Kratom, can you get physically dependent on Kratom? Probably. A lot of people do. Um, but are you going to go out and start doing shady things and robbing your family, pawning things that belong to your children for Kratom? Like, I don't think so. Like, it just doesn't hit that part of your brain that screams, I need some more of this, the mm -hmm. way opiates do. 
So in your experience, you were able to reduce your usage. So you started off in those first two to three weeks uh, utilizing yep. six to 10 grams per day. Take it from there. What's your usage gone to it was from six, then? Six to 10 grams per dose oh, is per what dose. I was taking oh, every, okay. every two to three hours. So it was, it was quite well over an, an ounce a day is what I was taking. And the okay. funny thing about Freedom is I didn't try to reduce my dose. It just happened. Um, there was no... Like, it's not something that I worked to do or that I was even cognizant of. Um, I just started sleeping through the night, so I didn't need the nighttime dose. Um, I got to the point eventually where I could wake up and not be sick in the mornings anymore. So sometimes, you know, I wouldn't take it until lunchtime. Um, and anything over four to six grams or really two to four grams at this point, but it's been 18 months, it, it makes you feel kind of, kind of nauseous. So the lower doses, the further you get away from acute withdrawal, the easier it is just to take less than that. So for me, in my personal experience. Yeah. So today, are you struggling at all with uh, dealing with the addiction to you know many years of addiction to opioids? Um, I'm. You know, I'm not. Um, I had a therapist I saw um, not that long ago who who said something to me about, oh, it must be so hard to to fight every day not to use. I don't even think about using anymore. And when I tell my story to people, when I sit down in a room full of people, which I do sometimes, and I tell them the, the whole story, it's like I'm talking about someone else. It, it seems like it was another lifetime, perhaps. Using is just no longer an option for me, and I feel like in my personal experience, Kratom's a big part of that. Um, I never saw me living a life without alcohol either, like not even talk about opiates. I figured I would always be a drinker because it's something I enjoyed very much, even though it wasn't great for me. I have not had a single craving for any alcohol in the past 18 months. And I think a lot of that's due to craving, due to Kratom. Kratom, yeah. So what else do people need to know about Kratom in your estimation there, Courtney? People need to know the impact that it's going to have um, if the FDA and the DEA do ban Kratom. Um, people's lives are going to be her changed in horrific ways. People need to know that it's not a drug of abuse. It's it's not a drug in my retrospect that has any recreational value. It's not a drug. It's not something that kids want to get their hands on. It's a leaf. It's a member of the coffee family. Um, even, you know, the whole, is it a drug? Is it not a drug? That's argued quite a bit in the community, but you know, basis is it's a supplement, it's a plant and it's changing people's lives. Um, and I don't, I, I can't stomach any more deaths in this, in in the recovery community. I just can't stomach anymore. So, so I'm really hoping Kratom stays accessible. So share with us from your perspective, what happens if the FDA does make Kratom a controlled substance like heroin? I think there'll be a lot of really desperate people. And I think we'll be in a lot of situations where going back on traditional medications, especially for people with chronic pain, isn't going to be an option. I can't, I personally can't imagine going back to Suboxone um, to control things like, you know, cravings. And um, I don't know what will happen to my life. I really don't. I, I would never say that, oh, I'll go back to using, you know, pills or street drugs or I'll go back on Suboxone because I really don't know. My hope is that I'll always know where to find it and that I don't want to live like that anymore. You know, I don't want to live with doing shady things. Um, but if it meant me staying alive and me being a mother um, and me doing what I do, I work for Greener Pastures, which is amazing. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that. It's plant-based recovery. Um, I don't know what life would look like. That's really tough to answer. It's, it's not going to be good, though. 
So today you work at Greener Pastures. I, I knew that you uh, had visited there. I did not realize that you actually worked there. Um, Greener Pastures, of course, is the one and only uh, rehab facility that does incorporate Kratom in their, uh, their rehab process. So tell us a little bit about that. Greener Pastures were started by an amazing couple. Um, their names are Roxy and Ron. Um, they're a couple that there's been a lot of talk. Um, about what to do about the opiate epidemic, what to do to stop people from dying. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of action, and there's some of some of the people that I've met that have been willing to take some action around this. And they started a recovery house. Um, it's very similar to a rehab where we focus on mindfulness. And part of what we do is we allow people to learn. I don't even want to say I want to you know, I don't even want to use the word teach. We allow people to learn how to use plants as part of their recovery, um, kratom, cannabis, chamomile, um, about how to re- restore balance to their life using plants. So, and it's pretty amazing. Give us an example of pretty amazing. So, so people have the option when they come there. It's it's not inpatient. It's outpatient, right? So they go there and um, it is. What's inpatient? It's inpatient. It oh. is inpatient. Um, we have people from all sorts of you know walks of life coming in. Um, a large percentage of the people that we do see are people that, you know, have issues with opiates and they come in and a lot of times they come in really, really sick Um, and we support them through withdrawal and then as they get better, we support them with learning mindfulness skills, there's yoga, there's talk therapy and what we do is it's kind of like in nursing school, it's the whole like you're shown something, you do it and then you teach it and I approach teaching people about Kratom like that. At first, I'm making, I'm helping them make their dose and I'm, sometimes I'm doing it for them if they're really sick, you know, their supplement with Kratom. And um, towards the end, though, the goal is that they're able to figure out what they need and how much they need and how to keep themselves healthy utilizing plants. Well, Courtney, I want to thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. What do you want people to take away from this podcast? I want, I want, people, to, um, I want people to realize that maybe how they, in their mind, that they see people who have substance abuse issues, maybe that's not the way it really is. Um, people with substance abuse issues are everywhere. They're your grandma, they're your nurse. Um, and I want people to know that multiple, about multiple pathways of recovery, about recovery doesn't look the same for every single person. And using substances like Kratom or Canvas, um, it doesn't make your recovery any less valid than anyone else's. Um, and I want people I want people to do something like what you're doing, like what I'm doing. Um, I want people to take some action so we can stop seeing all these deaths. Really appreciate your sharing your story too. I know, you know, even no matter how many times you share that, it, it each time it opens up a new wound. I'm sure, and and it, I know it's cathartic, but still, it's it's something that's also uh, very very powerful. So appreciate it. Thank you so much, and it's it's very important, and I'm really honored, again, to have the opportunity to do it. I, I hope that one person hears this, um, it's hopeless today, and it gives them some hope that they, too, can have a better life. We've been visiting today with Courtney True, a heroin addict who struggled with opioid dependence for 27 years before discovering Kratom. Courtney is one of millions of people who have found Kratom helps them keep their cravings for opioids at bay and gives them a shot at recovery. There are a number of downsides, however, to using Kratom, including the fact that no studies on its long-term health effects have been done, and the DEA has yet to rule on whether to schedule it as a Schedule I banned substance. Despite the downsides, Kratom seems to offer an all-natural alternative to Suboxone that is working for millions of people today 
who are all betting the unknown long-term health risks of Kratom down the road are worth the trade-off of the known risks of death, infection, and disease from continued opioid use. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.